if you don't know me now, it's a bit quieter. I'm Gus. Hello and Happy New Year from me too. Ooh, nice slide there, isn't it? I don't know what you're clapping for, but I receive. <laughs> Happy New Year to me too. Uh, just a little bit of family news, two little tiny bits of family news before we go on. Family news in Oasis Church is stuff that goes on in the, in, the, in the life of the church that sometimes we find out about on a Sunday morning. And bizarrely, I've only just found out, but it's really good news, that Anthony and Ioma Day, who are friends of mine who are over there, I've heard they've had a baby and it's their first Sunday with baby today, Micah. So a little clap to them. Fantastic. Woo! We like that. Hello, guys. And uh, also our international travelling global tour people, Steve and Tanya Bounds, are in the building. Where are they? Woo! A little clap for them as well. If you're sitting in your seat and I haven't mentioned you and you think you're special, you are. <laughs> so it's a new year. Uh, at New Year, we do that Happy New Year thing. Uh, I'm doing it all the time. I mean it when I say it to people. I did say it to one person this week and they looked at me with a really gruff expression as though, you know, I was cursing them for the year that was ahead. So I didn't quite get that one. Uh, but it does, I am, I'm not the biggest fan of Happy New Year, to be honest with you, because when we say it, whilst it's a good intention, and of course it is, the truth of the matter is that none of us have got any idea what's coming up in the year ahead. And so we can say, oh, Happy New Year, Happy New Year, Happy New Year, and that's what we all want. But actually, around the corner, we don't know what's coming. And many of you will know, for me at least, and for my family last year, uh, at the beginning of last year, a happy new year would have looked a bit weird as the year went on because it was racked full of suffering and difficulty and, and hardship. Not that we're uh, afraid or, or worried about what happened, but Janie, my wife, had cancer, two big operations, chemotherapy, all really dark, uh, as many of you will know. I was chatting to someone else this morning, uh, and this all of a sudden goes really dark. They're expecting to die this year, this person that I was chatting to this morning. Uh, and they said to me, is, happy, is, is 2017 going to be a good year for you? And I said, I said, I don't know, to be honest with you. I don't know whether it's going to be good. But what I do know is that Jesus is good. And the person I was chatting to, who thinks they're going to die this year, agreed with that comment. Whatever happens, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. I worship this morning as testimony to that. That whatever life looks like, you know, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, boring, rich, poor, sick, health, Jesus is king. And uh, my heart this morning as we go through what we're going to look at is that we see again how amazingly good Jesus is. And we've got some things that I think we can learn as a community this morning from what I am going to bring that can shape us as we look ahead into 2017. So that's just a little brief intro. Anybody got any New Year's resolutions they do at the beginning of the new year? They're brave enough to share? A bit risky, but no one? I've got some New Year's resolutions. I thought that might happen, but I thought somebody might be brave enough to say they're going to buy a cat or something like that. Oh, somebody's going to buy a cat in 2017. Oh, quality. It's prophetic anymore. Any budgery gars on offer? Oh, we're not having a cat. Okay, we'll just... There's going to be some prayer ministry at the end, so we'll get Colin and Jen Ford and resolve some conflict in their marriage at the beginning of the year. One of my uh, New Year's resolutions... Uh, I've got a few this year, actually. I'm not big... I don't always do New Year's resolutions, but I've got a few this year. One is to read the Bible in a year, something I've done in the past, something I've started doing as from January 1, something I'm already enjoying. It's good to read the Bible as a whole when you can. Uh, there's loads of, of the Bible that you forget, I find. And, you know, as a church leader, that's quite embarrassing when people quote a verse at you and expect to know exactly where it is or who they're talking about. And I think, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Integrity. That's true. So, uh, and even this week, I've been learning things. I didn't know that was there in the Bible. But anyway, so I've started reading the Bible in the beginning. In the beginning. Oh, I know that bit. <laughs> yeah. That's in uh, John, isn't it? Oh. <laughs> anyway. 
Genesis 1 verse 14 says this. It says, uh, not a big thing. It says, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And it struck me that there are times that come that God has instigated, that God has invented, that we like to call seasons. Uh, I know in Christian circles, seasons is an often overly used word. There's always a season for something or other coming around the corner, particularly in prophetic words, I would say, when we don't quite know when it's going to come. But there is a season coming. Uh, We have seasons in Oasis Church, don't we, for the young and the old, depending on what uh, season of life you are in. And many of you want to be in that group, uh, whether you are young or old. but for me, the key point here is that the beginning of a new year is a new season, whether we like it or not. And God's behind that. God likes the beginnings of new seasons. And the reason he likes natural seasons for us is because it gives us an opportunity to reflect about what is ahead. And this is, the, a new year for anybody is a good opportunity to reflect about what is ahead. And that's what I want to do through this message. And as I've been praying and thinking about what to bring this morning, and it's been part of the, 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 the non-reading uh, Bible in year plan that I'm doing. I was in Luke and I was reading the story of Jairus and his daughter and the woman who uh, came to Jesus along the way. And I felt God speak to me uh, through that story and that's what therefore we're going to hear from this morning. Something that is active, current, living in my life at the moment that I thought could uh, bless all of us. So the title of my message this morning is called Touch and Go, as we'll see why in a minute. We're in Luke chapter 8. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to it and make sure that I'm not making it up. Uh, if you haven't got a Bible, you'll see that I've made it up on the screen behind me. No, it's the Bible, I assure you. Luke chapter 8, and it's 40 to verse uh, 56. We're going to read this, and then we're going to go through it together. So Luke uh, chapter 8, verse 40, says this. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house Because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, came along. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. And when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop 
wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, and he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This is quality, quality stuff from Jesus. Great stories. Two stories. A story within a story. And as I've said already, the title of my message to help us remember what's in this passage today is Touch and Go. Now, Touch and Go is an expression which is normally associated to something that is kind of teetering a little bit on a knife edge, isn't it? Something that may happen or something that may not happen. So you might be involved in a house move, for example, and the house move's going well, and all of a sudden something happens, and all of a sudden it's touch and go. Or you might be recovering from a major operation or a long-term illness or something like that. Everything's going well, something comes along, get a bug, all of a sudden your health is touch and go. Or a business project that you are looking to deliver by a certain deadline, going well, all of a sudden looking a bit dodgy, touch and go. That's what touch and go normally means when we look at that expression. In this story, we've got, I think, two little touch and go moments. We've got Jairus's touch and go moment, which actually has already gone well beyond touch and go. Jairus's daughter is not touch and go as to whether she's going to survive or not. She is going to die. He knows that when he comes to Jesus, we'll see in a minute. Not touch and go, worse than touch and go, it's gone beyond touch and go. So that's Jairus' scenario. And then you've got the woman who is looking for a touch and go, literally that. She's looking to touch Jesus, unnoticed, invisible, literally just touch him, receive something from him, then completely disappear. Go off into her life, having had the briefest of encounters with Jesus in, all, in order to get something from him. So this, these two stories, I think, are well divined by that little expression, touch and go. And I also think from it that there's going to be something here for us as a church this year that we can apply in our own lives around that idea of touch and go. So that's why I've used the little phrase to try and help us remember where we're going to go with it. What we're going to do is we're going to start at the beginning of the story and reasonably quickly step through it again so that I can kind of teach the story to you, bring it alive, bring some things into it that you perhaps might have not realised as you've read it for the first time. And then right at the end, we'll see some things that we can apply to ourselves from the story that I think are going to really shape us in 2017. So let's zip back to verse 40, and we've got Jesus arriving from across the lake. It says, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And where Jesus had been in the previous story, if you look at it in Luke, is he'd been across the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. And in the region of the Gerasenes, there's another famous story of Jesus where he comes across a massively demon-possessed man. I say massively because the man had a legion of demons inside him. I don't know what your theology is on the supernatural, what your theology is on demons, but in this story, in that day, this guy was possessed. He was naked. He was able to fight people off like some superhuman nutter, if I can use that expression. I'm not sure I can, so apologies if it's uh, inappropriate. Uh, but he was the sort of person that caused people to think, I, I, I can't go near this guy. This is dangerous. And Jesus comes into the scene, and he casts the demons out of this man. He puts them into a herd of pigs, if you remember. The herd of pigs rush down the hillside, are drowned in the Sea of Galilee, and the man is left in his right mind, quiet, sitting, clothed, able to talk, able to converse with Jesus. It's an incredible miracle. And everybody noticed how amazing it was. So Jesus comes back, as he often does, from an incredible miracle. A miracle, And there's a crowd welcoming him. And they, why not? Because Jesus is coming. He's coming. 
And they're expectant of him coming and they're waiting and watching and hoping that he might do something for them. Now, amongst the crowd, we've got Jairus. Jairus is in the crowd and Jairus was a man of quite some eminence in his community. The reason he was a man of quite some eminence is because he was a synagogue leader. And a synagogue leader in Jesus' day was someone who was involved in synagogue life. He used to hang out with the synagogue, other leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, that kind of thing. And he would be responsible for organizing, for one of the better expression, church meetings. So he'd be responsible for making sure the worship band's in place and that you've got a decent preacher and you've got someone that can read the Bible. Nobody smiled at that point, thank you. You've got somebody who's ready to do the prayers, read the scriptures, that kind of thing. So Jairus would be a man of quite some recognition and reverence in the community. A good guy, someone who people wanted to honour, as people generally want to do, of all church leaders. Sorry, was that fair? <laughs> quite right, Colin. What is particularly intriguing about this part of the story and Jairus in particular, is that because he was a synagogue leader, moved and shaped with the synagogue leaders of his day, we know that they were extremely sceptical about Jesus and his message. Not just extremely sceptical, they wanted to see the end of Jesus and the end of his message and the end of his blasphemous band of followers, didn't they? They didn't want Jesus around at all. And so it makes Jairus's movement, Jairus' response to Jesus at this moment, even more gritty. Because what happens, as we know, is Jairus <coughs> throws himself at Jesus' feet and pleads with him to sort out a problem that's a really big problem. And having this synagogue leader lying prostrate before the one who everybody else in his circles thought was probably a blasphemous teacher and they wanted to see the end of, that was no small thing for Jairus to do. That's a pretty heavy thing for anybody to do. In spite of all your friends, all your colleagues thinking one thing, you're going to say, I don't care what you think, I'm going to lay my, my life down before Jesus at this point in time. And the reason he wanted to do it is because he had a problem, a really big, serious problem. And his really big, serious problem was that his daughter, his only daughter, 12 years old, was dying. It wasn't a question that she might be dying, it was gone beyond touch and go. She was dying. And it could be the case, and I don't know this, but it could be the case that you're in this room today and you know what it's like to have lost a child. If you have, it, it, it must be incredibly heartbreaking. I can't believe it. I, I, I haven't been through that um, experience myself. What I have seen through very young eyes is when I was about, I don't know, at 16, something like that, 14 to 16 years old, I used to babysit for a family uh, in the village that I used to grow up with. They had three children, uh, Claire, who's the youngest who I used to babysit for, Gary, who's the middle son, and Nicola, who's the oldest daughter. And when Gary was 18, so he was about three years older than me, the first day he went out on his motorbike, after he passed his motorbike cycling test, he drove into the back of the car and was instantly killed. That was absolutely horrific for that family that I used to babysit. It was horrific for me, and I didn't even really know them that well. It was horrific for the church of which they were a part. It broke everybody in an instant. Having a child who is definitely going to die is not a small thing. It's not something you just think, oh, right, yeah, Jairus' daughter was going to die. You think, hang on a minute, that's horrible, isn't it? 
So Jairus had a problem and he came to Jesus with the problem because he knew that if Jesus was who he said he was and Jesus could do the things that reportedly he'd been reported to be able to do, this is the moment where I'm going to bear all before Jesus and say, I need you, Jesus. Please, will you help? What does Jesus do? Well, he's moved by it, isn't he? Because he's got a, a crowd. Luke says the crowd is crushing in on Jesus. He's got a crowd of people that have come, welcoming him, expecting him to do some amazing things. And Jesus, whatever he'd planned for all that crowd, goes, makes for Jairus' house. Being presented with a man in desperation moves Jesus to say, right, that's where I'm going. You come with me. Everybody else, you can wait for a moment. This is important. I care about you. Yeah. Off we go. That bit's moving for me. I think amazing, incredible. So Jesus drops everything, heads off towards Jairus' house, and then something else happens. Something else happens. And what happens, we know because we've read the story, a woman comes up, and her intention is the same as Jairus, but absolutely different to Jairus as well. She wants an encounter with Jesus too, but she wants a touch-and-go encounter with Jesus. She wants literally to come up in the crowd, invisible, unknown, unnoticed, literally touch the edge of her clothes, somehow in faith that she's going to receive some kind of healing from Jesus for the predicament that she's in, and then disappear, unknown to everybody, unknown to Jesus. She's looking for a private encounter with Jesus, which is just for her. Jairus had a public one that he knew everybody was going to be part of. And she needed something as well because she had a big problem, a serious big problem for her. And her serious big problem was that she had 12 years of internal bleeding. That sounds pretty nasty to me. 12 years of internal bleeding. And in Mark's Gospel account, it tells you that she spent all her money and seen loads and loads of doctors trying to get this situation sorted out. The doctors in Jesus' day are not as good as the doctors in Oasis Church. All that happened was that her condition got worse got worse not better so she's in the crowd and she's thinking i'm just going to try and touch jesus no one will know jesus won't know only i will know all i need to do is touch the edge of his cloak and that according to the commentaries is what she did she probably touched just the tassel of Jesus' cloak as he hung over the sash that he used to wear in his day, just literally the edge of the tassel to touch Jesus and see what happens. Mark again says this, Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. What a great one-liner that is. Touch Jesus. Literally just touch him. And her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. She knew at that moment for her that she'd received healing from Jesus. When people have a healing testimony, don't diss it. This is her saying, I got healed. I knew something happened. What's so intriguing at this point, of course, is that Jesus noticed it. You've got this massive crowd, a hubbub, a noise, people pushing in here and there and everywhere. Luke describes it as crushing Jesus. And yet, at the moment of that touch, Jesus knew that someone had specifically touched him for purpose. He knew it. And he said, who touched me? Who touched me? And it is a ridiculous question. Because there was a crowd, and there were loads of people, and it was a crush. 
and people were jostling and making a noise and rubbing shoulders and all that kind of thing. So who touched me was a ridiculous question to ask at that moment, which is why our friend Peter, as he always does, does his best to try and resolve the obvious when in fact it's not quite so obvious as he thinks it is. And he says this, he says, don't be a Muppet, Jesus. There are loads of people pressing in on you. It could have been anyone. That's the Gus Rosier version not yet released of this story. Jesus was persist- persistent. He said, someone touch me. I know that power has gone from me. He was persistent. He wasn't going to let that moment go. Someone had reached out for him. He knew someone had touched him, and he wasn't going to let that moment go. And you can imagine almost him just standing there, looking around, and everybody else is a little bit flustered. He's like, oh, we're not moving from this point until I know who it was who touched me. It's a little bit like being in a school classroom when you, the teacher knows that someone's flicked you know, a, a, an elastic band at somebody else's head and they just stand and say, we're not moving from this moment until whoever it is owns up. And you're all sitting there thinking, oh no, it's detention tonight because we know who did it but they're not going to own up, are they? You might have been the one that used to flick the elastic band. <laughs> to her credit, the woman came forward. To her credit. And we know it's to her credit because it says she came forward trembling. Trembling is a disposition that one has when one is full of fear about what is going to happen. Now, we don't know quite how it was going to work out, and she didn't know how it was going to work out because she's wondering, perhaps, was she going to get a rebuke? Was she going to get words from Jesus that you, you, if you're going to touch me, you need it completely differently. I'm telling you off. Have some of that. Would she get some kind of rebuff? Would she get her healing removed from her? Would she be ridiculed in front of the crowd because she'd done something that perhaps she wasn't supposed to do? She didn't know what she was going to get, but she was willing to face her fear and face Jesus. So she came forward and she plucked up courage and said, look, this was my intention. All I wanted was a touch. All I wanted was my healing. And do you know what? I received it as well. It's good news. What does Jesus say? If you know Jesus, you won't be surprised. No rebuff, no ridicule, no rebuke. Jesus doesn't do that kind of thing. Jesus always speaks of love, admiration, comfort, congratulation, mercy and grace. That's what Jesus does. And he says this, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Daughter, a term of endearment communicating safety and acceptance. Reference to faith. Jesus always loved faith. He was always looking for faith. He's always looking for our faith. He commended faith. He said, your faith has healed you. And then you wanted to touch and then you wanted to go. I wanted you to touch me and then go with peace. Go in peace. Don't just come in here and get out of here. Receive from me something that I've got for you, which is peace. Go in peace peace and so the woman is left having a supernatural personal encounter with God with Jesus rather than some kind of supernatural experiential disconnect from Jesus she had faith for her healing but he had faith for her he wanted connection relationship communion personal relationship with that woman and he wasn't going to let it go until she had him Great story. I love, I love that bit of the story. And you think, wow, this is an amazing story. Jesus is so amazing. How must it, what must it have been like to watch these things happen? 
And think of the woman and, and the release that she must have felt and the freedom and the joy and the peace. and Amazing. And then you think, oh, I could dwell on this for quite a long time. And you think, hang on a minute, what, what's happened with Jairus? Weren't we on Jairus? Weren't we being amazed by Jairus and his daughter's story a minute ago? And we were. And so you get drawn into this story, and then you get this shocking news that comes just as Jesus is communing with this woman from the messengers, from Jairus' house, that, dare I say, surprise, surprise, Jairus' daughter has in fact died. So it was right all along. It wasn't touch and go. It was worse than touch and go. She was going to die, and now... She had died. And imagine if you're Jairus in that moment, who's bared all, risked all to lay prostrate at the feet of Jesus in public, in the face of many of his enemies, saying, Jesus, come and do something because my daughter's dying. She is going to die. And then him, Jesus, saying, yeah, I'm coming with you. And the rays of hope, the rise of hope that Jairus would have in that moment, that Jesus is coming and it's going to be all right. And then news that breaks that the daughter has died, the only daughter. If you are mum and dad in those situations, that is a punch to the stomach, the light of which you cannot imagine. Your loved one is no more. Your only daughter is no more. That hurts. Jairus would have been absolutely devastated at that moment, broken at that moment, sorrowful to that moment. He probably fell on his head. He probably burst into tears. Something would have happened at that moment to demonstrate the sorrow that Jairus would have carried. And then on top of the sorrow, questions that come on the back of bad news, which is what if, what if, what if, what if we hadn't stopped? What if this woman hadn't bothered Jesus? What if Jesus hadn't paused for as long as he did and tried to draw out the crowd? What if we'd have just moved on from her and got to my house and everything would have been all right? Questions about the futility of him bearing all before his enemies. That was pointless, wasn't it? Everybody knows now that I've got some degree of faith in Jesus, but they didn't really need to know because Jesus hasn't sorted it out. Emotions running rife at this moment. The whole thing becomes void to Jairus. And the messengers actually say, don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Or in other words, Jesus' power does not extend beyond death. This is the end of the story for you, Jairus. That isn't, is it? Because when Jesus there is there, there is no end to any story. That's the good news. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's an eternal risen king. When we have Jesus in our lives, it might look difficult, it might look hard, there might be suffering and persecution or struggle or dreams that you haven't yet seen come, come, come true. But if Jesus is there, there's no end to the story. He is the rock of ages. He's the one who stands alongside you. He's the one who can always do something that can turn your head and make things all right, whatever it looks like. No end of the story. Jesus' power does go beyond death. He rose from the dead, pinned on a cross, rose again from the dead. Sin couldn't keep him down, God raised him up. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's good news. Never alone with Jesus, always there to do the amazing thing. And he turns to Jairus and he says, don't be afraid, just believe. Just believe and she will be healed. Or in other words, keep trusting in me, Jairus. Keep believing in me, Jairus. I am going to raise your daughter from the dead. 
That's what he was saying in those words to Jairus. I spent a good amount of time looking at commentaries around that particular verse. None of them had the Gus Vosia version, which is, have some of that. Have some of that! Oh, yes! <laughs> Jesus is saying, I'm going to go and raise your daughter from the dead. You what? Yes. Just believe, don't be afraid. Let's see what happens then, shall we? So, that's what Jesus does, doesn't he? He goes to Jairus' house. He's faced with a whole load of mourners who are there, wailing and mourning. Why? Because Jairus' daughter has died. She was going to die. It wasn't a sham or a pretend story. She's dead. That's why they're there. He takes Peter, James and John in with him and mum and dad. This is not a public miracle. This is a private moment. Jesus understands people and understands situation. He took James and Peter and John in. Took mum and dad in. He goes up to Jairus' daughter. What does he do? Touches her hand. And he then commands her to get up. And up she comes. Risen from the dead. Risen from the dead. A dead girl in the presence of her parents. Risen. <laughs> what an incredible moment that must have been. To see anybody risen from the dead is probably an incredible moment. But if you're mum and dad at that moment, imagine the incredible emotion of seeing your daughter, who you knew was dead, have a touch from Jesus this time and be raised from the dead. You'd be all over the place, wouldn't you? Tears, you'd probably wobble, wobble, whatever wobbles look like in your life, falling over, standing up, sitting down, I don't know what. Incredible moment. Jesus then says, me, it goes practical. He says, give her something to eat. That's what he does if you look at the passage. And that's good parenting to do that. When your children are ill, and they're recovering. It's Heinz tomato soup and Marmite on toast, isn't it? It's what you do. You give something to eat to the child. Jesus knows that. And then Jesus gives the, what well, in my view is the most ridiculous post-miracle request that he ever has given to anybody, which is he says, don't tell anybody about this. <laughs> you know what I mean, so, hello. All right, mum and dad, I don't want you to tell anybody what's just happened. I'm sorry, my daughter was dead and now she's alive. Yes, but keep it quiet, will you? How can I keep it quiet? How could you possibly keep that quiet? And anyway, how are you going to keep it quiet for all the mourners and wailers downstairs who were having a go at you lot when you came in? Because they said that she was dead and you said, oh, you can't keep it quiet. Anyway, I'm not answering that question. I just thought you could have that one to muse for yourself. The key point about that part of the story is that there was conclusion, thrilling conclusion to Jairus' big serious problem. Jesus had set out to bring healing to Jairus' daughter. And that's exactly what he did do, even though it looked like it had gone wrong on the way. So you've got our woman with the internal bleeding. Touch and go. Jesus meets her, turns her around. Jairus with his daughter, dead, beyond touch and go, touches her, raises her from the dead. Two incredible miracles. Makes me excited. Thinks Jesus can do, think Jesus can do anything as a result of that in my life. Happy to have God of part of my life. Know that he's the rock that can always help us in whatever's going on. But there's an element of so what in it all. 
because the stories itself can thrill us and we can get excited by it and think, oh, I wish I was there and isn't Jesus amazing? But can we draw anything out from the story that we can apply to ourselves in our thinking today and this year as we go forward with God? Yes, there are. You'll be pleased to hear. Five things I've got and then a little bit of crescendo in terms of touch and go. Five things quickly. The first is a welcome. Back to that first 40, the crowd welcomed Jesus. They welcomed Jesus because they knew that he was coming back from being an amazing miracle worker. It's 2017, the beginning of a new year. Have you, have I, specifically, intentionally, already this year, welcomed Jesus back into our lives? If you're a follower of Jesus, you probably have. Or if you haven't, this is an opportunity to think about that. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you've got questions about him, I'd encourage you, he's a great guy. He's a good God. He can do amazing things. He's not bad news. He's someone, if you get to know, will turn your world upside down. Why not start the year, whether believer or unbeliever, welcoming Jesus into your life? Here I am, Lord. Whatever you want, I'm here. Second expectation. Well, you can welcome Jesus in. The crowd had an expectation that Jesus was going to do something amazing, because that's what he could do. So there are things in our lives that we're waiting to happen, that we want to see happen in our lives, why not come with a sense of expectation to Jesus as we welcome him? Say, look, Jesus, there's this, or there's this, or there's this. Please come and do something in my life, in other people's life, in situations that I'm really hurting for this year to make a difference in order that that situation will change, kingdom will come, and God's name will be glorified. Expectation. Third, humility. Humility. Let's be men and women of humility. Jairus was willing to bear all before Jesus. He didn't care what anybody thought, including his enemies. He had a problem that needed sorted, and it was pretty dark. But he brought it to Jesus. He shared it with Jesus in front of the whole crowd that was there. There's going to be things in our lives this year and in the years to come that we haven't got the answers to, that we can't sort, that we can't resolve, that we're stuck on, that we're hurting over. And we think, how is it ever going to get resolved? The way that we do it is we come on our, knee, on our knees before Jesus in humility and say, I can't do it, but hey, Jesus, you can. So let's be a transparent people, shall we? I think we are in Oasis. I think we're pretty good at this. I think we're pretty good at living life on life and being honest about where we're at. And that's something we want to keep on doing. But let's have our walks with Jesus marked by humility this year, shall we? And then number four, encounter. Encounter. The woman wanted a silent, quiet, hidden, invisible, unnoticed encounter with Jesus, a touch and go. I just want something of Jesus and then I'm out of here. Jesus wanted personal relationship, personal encounter. He wanted to meet the woman, see the woman, speak to the woman, encourage the woman, know the woman, send her out with faith and peace. Let's be a people who want to encounter Jesus this year. Encounter him. He's alive and, and sits at the right hand of the Father. He's there for us, a friend, a brother, a strong man for us, a counsellor, a comforter. That's who we have in Jesus. Let's push into him. Let's go deeper in Jesus this year. That's what I want to do this year, go deeper into Jesus. It's one of the reasons I'm reading about stories in the Bible I've never heard before. I have heard them before, I know you know. Encounter Jesus. And finally... Miracles, something we keep pushing in Oasis Church because we haven't got there yet. There are two miracles that happen in these two stories, just in case we've missed them. Internal bleeding for 12 years that nobody could sort out, Jesus healed. 
and a dead daughter that I don't think, apart from Jesus, anybody can sort out. Miracles. Let's be a people this year, a congregation, a family, a community, whatever you want to call it, that goes for the miracle, that says, Jesus, we want to see it. We want to see the sick get better. People that can't hear, hear. People that can't see, see. People that got bad necks have better necks. People that got dodgy backs have good backs. People that struggle with drinking or swearing or whatever it might be, get, get free of that. Whatever it might be, we want to see miracles happen, don't we? Let's be pushing into the miraculous and see God make a name for himself amongst us as a community. We've got welcome, we've got expectation, we've got humility, we've got encounter, we've got miracle. And in it all, in my view, we've got this banner across us which is touch and go. What do I mean by that? I mean there are things in our lives, there's things in mine that I'm going for this year. You might be thinking about a job move, for example. You might be thinking about a geographical move. You might be thinking about, I hope you're not, a church move, for example. You might be thinking about doing something like starting some kind of ministry that you've you've had on your heart for ages to do. You think, this is the year, this is the year, I'm going to do it. You might be thinking of spending loads of money in a way that you've never spent it before. It's something that you're going for. It's a kind of a goal. It's a, it's a big thing for you. It's, there's going to be things this year that are the thing for you. It could be that you've had dreams that you thought, this is the year that God's going to meet the dream. Keep going for those things, what I'm saying. Let's keep going for them with Jesus. Yes, 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 what I'm saying to that. But what I'm also saying is that along the way, let's not forget to touch, reach out for Jesus in them. Don't let those things become the only thing and consume you. Unless I'm going to Mozambique this year, uh, that's it, I'm not following Jesus anymore. I know you wouldn't say that, but do you see what I'm saying? Unless I get that new job, that's it, I'm done. And I think, right, I'm in faith for that thing, but I'm going to keep on touching Jesus in every single way I possibly can in order to enrich my relationship with him. Be in the word, be in worship, be in prayer, be in small group. Go to your youth event or your student and twenties event or your Monday night football event or your impact thing. Keep touching Jesus in all those different things in your workplaces, in your schools, in your... Keep touching Jesus. Don't stop touching Jesus in the little things of life so that the big things that you're going for become all-consuming. Do both. So that we can look forward to the miraculous as we go through the things that we've always had on our heart to do, but then we can look for the miraculous in the little touch points that we enjoy because when we do that, Jesus blows us away as well. Touch and go. Touch and go for Jairus. Touch and go for the women. Touch and go, perhaps for all of us. Why don't we stand and I'll pray. Just gonna, I'm not going to do a put your hand up or stand up or sit down or anything like that, but I'm just conscious in all this, the easiest thing to do in terms of response this morning is just to, it's just to welcome Jesus. It can be a quiet thing a thing that we do, I do, you do, before Jesus this morning. And my encouragement would be, why don't we take this moment, if you're a follower of Jesus, to say, yeah, I'm welcoming you, Jesus, again into my life this morning. I'm here. Whatever, whatever it's going to look like, I'm here with you, for you. And I know that I need you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've got questions or you've, you've found other things have distracted you, whatever it is, this could be a moment for you where you think, I'm going to do that. I'm going to welcome Jesus back in or in for the first time. So I'm just going to pray that and then we'll close. Jesus, we're all here by your grace. We thank you for your uh, words to us through the worship, that your grace is sufficient and you have so much more for us every single day. 
Thank you that you're above all things and can do the incredible. And Lord, we want to, I want to welcome you into my life again this morning. I want to be an ambassador of yours, an advocate for you, uh, one who follows you in faith. And I pray that for all my friends in this room, for the men and women here, Lord God, that each of them would welcome you as well and that we'd see you do some amazing things in the months and years that are ahead. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.